Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, uh, live by emerging markets and potentially die by emerging markets. Damien Sassau, our fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us now to tell us all about how it is the worst year since 2004 for emerging market bonds. That was quick. <laughs> well, it was just a month ago we were here talking about how great emerging market Well, that's my point. Yeah, yeah, what happened in the last month? Uh, the dollar, right? I mean, we've been talking about the dollar for so long, about dollar strength and, and how it's just managed to be this one-way street. And since 118.58 against the euro right now, yeah. 135 against the pound sterling, and 109 against the Japanese yen. Yeah, Pim, it's amazing. You know, everyone always looks at the G3 currency crosses, but uh, it's China. I have to tell you, it's been the renminbi. That, that, is, that is what's changed, right? I mean, for the past year, you've seen the Chinese yuan basically on a one-way street appreciating relative to the dollar. And that turned about a month ago in mid-April, and that's what drove everything here. China dovishness kind of crept in, and people started to say, well, wait a second now. Um, maybe the PBOC is going to let the currency depreciate, and what does that mean for the you know, what does that mean for the dollar? And of course, people woke up to the reality that, well, that's, that's good for the dollar and that's bad for yen. So just to sort of walk through the logic here, typically when the dollar strengthens, that means that all of these uh, developing nations that have borrowed a lot of hard currency assets will have a harder time paying back their debt. Is that the main reason here? Well, that's one element of it, right? I mean, you're obviously talking about all of the emerging market uh, 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 borrowers who have issued dollar debt, but their local government debt, you know, their local currency debt is what the real killer here is because the currency it's denominated in is no longer worth what it's written on. Right. So uh, that is part of the issue. Now, here is the question. Have we reached a point where the sell-off has escalated to such a degree that people are coming in and buying, buying opportunities? No. I, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. The buying opportunities that we've seen in EM debt have only been in EM dollar debt, and they've only been idiosyncratic opportunities in, in names like Teva, which had sold off significantly, or right. Odebrecht. But certainly, we have not seen new money coming in and saying, these are attractive levels. We're getting paid, you know, we're getting attractive yields, attractive carries, and EM dollar debt to go in at this stage. We're not seeing that yet. In fact, we're seeing fund flows accelerate, uh, fund outflows accelerate right now. So I think we still have a little bit of pain left uh, left ahead of us. But fundamentally, EM is still you know in a relatively good place relative to where it's been just in 2013 during the last taper. Uh, and, and another, you know, kind of event-driven, you know, sort of event risk, uh, elevated event risk environments. And so, you know, I think this is a, a, a correction that's long overdue. Um, I think we got to wait and see it play through. I think, though, um, the real interesting dynamic within emerging market debt right now is local currency yields are actually below and on a duration adjusted base are about to sink below EM dollar yields for the first time since the global financial crisis. So you are not getting paid to go local in EM. And oh, hey, by the way, currency volatility is way more volatile than, than, than EM dollar spreads. And that's a real risk. Argentina. <laughs> Go ahead. That's not the punchline. That's the question. Oh, my God. Argentina. Argentina. Come on. So, so blended yields uh, in Argentina right now, dollar yields, 20%. So the risk here is do we go out and try to, you know, take a punt on getting a 20% payout 
per annum in Argentina dollar bonds with the currency risk and the currency volatility that has just been absolutely off the charts. I mean, I think it's down 20% in the last three weeks since we spoke last. You know, I'm struck by, and, and Pim, you mentioned Argentina, and this is a perfect segue. It's not just Argentina. You have Turkey. You have mm -hmm. the Philippines raising rates in order to support their currency. You have others as well. So, yes, on a whole, perhaps emerging markets are in a better position, but you have these trouble spots uh, that are very troubled spots with yeah. increasing trouble. And I wonder, especially given the fact, as we've talked many times before, how much money went in through indexed strategies trying to get a hold of the entire complex of emerging markets. How much just a couple bad names can taint the reputation and cause a flood of withdrawals? Absolutely. I mean, this all began with Russia and in many respects. This is really like as soon as Russia and, and the sanctions on Russia and Rusal and all that kind of started to hit and people started to reevaluate, well, well, wait a second here. The ruble's now off 10%. What other countries are vulnerable? You know, what does this mean for Turkey? What does this mean and for... And they actually have oil. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, a lot of countries don't have that commodity base. I, you know, it's, it's, but what's, we're so far off and by the time they actually uh, drill for some of that deep sea oil or gas whatever's under the basin I mean we might be an electric powered economy <laughs> so, so we really can't you know we can't obviously model that in I think I think for me and for what, what we're looking at is you know Argentina is a funny one, Pim. I mean, you know, it, it's just come back online. It's a serial defaulter. It's got its own set of risks. But Turkey, I think we're getting to a point here, you know, where you have to, you just have to take a look at it. I mean, some of the yields, I mean, are just, you just have to take a look at it, you know. And certainly Turkish financials, which I get, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of negative narrative around guarantee and Okbank and, and, and all that's going on in that sector. But I mean, you know, some of those banks are bellwethers. Some of them are, are you know, fundamentally healthy right now. <laughs> and, um, and so you have to begin to look at those, at those opportunities. All I can say, Pim, is that right here, Damien, he has a very strong stomach to be recommending. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 he's not, rec he's, he's only he's not no, recommending. He's not recommending. He's, he's just only saying suggesting that the yields are very high. They are high. Just Turkish financials. a look. You know, there's this, uh, we have an election coming up in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the Mexican economy, at least the government part of the economy, depends a lot on oil revenue. Yeah, the yeah. leader in the polls is basically saying we don't want foreign investment in the oil economy. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that is a risk, right? I mean, um, AMLO is definitely leading in the polls, and for all intents and purposes, he's probably going to be there. But I do, I, I, I'm not going to recommend it, but one area that does look rather attractive, and I'll tell you why, our Mexican high-grade debt, short duration, and, and that's like an America Mobile or a Televisa. And the reason I say that is Mexico tends to track, especially Mexican dollar debt, tends to track U.S. debt, right? right. U.S. high-grade debt. And U.S. high-grade debt, I mean, with the front end of the curve kind of ratcheting up here, I mean, you've got some attractive yields now and names that were, you know, I mean, you just couldn't, you couldn't invest in it before because you just weren't getting paid to own American mobile bonds, and now you are, and short-duration American mobile bonds. So I think in some pockets of the market, Brazilian financials, for example, Brazilian has one of the steepest yield curves out there. So you think, you know, steep yield curve is good for, for the financial right. sector, and it's also short-duration debt, right? Because, it, I mean, that's, that's the buzz, right? You want to go short in duration. And so that's another area you may want to take a look at as well. Itaú, uh, Bradesco, some, some banks there that might, might look pretty interesting at these levels.
Amazing. Really, really interesting. Damien Sassauer, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Damien Sassauer it talked about how a month ago it all looked different, but not to him. He'll he was back. a bear. Yeah, he'll be and back. he'll be back he'll telling us. He'll be back us. in a month and it'll be completely different exactly. then. <laughs> Damien Sassauer. <laughs> fixing by the time he gets to his chair. <laughs> Fixed income strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence joining us here at the Bloomberg World Headquarters, 730 Lexington. We are broadcasting live from Bloomberg's Business of Equality Summit, bringing together business leaders and thinkers to talk about how to make the workplace a better, more equal and comfortable place for everybody. We are broadcasting from Bloomberg's Business of Equality Summit in New York City, our corporate headquarters. We bring together business, academic, and political leaders, as well as the leaders of nonprofits to talk about changes in the world of business and equality and diversity. Joining us now is Elizabeth Yamayaro, a senior advisor to the Undersecretary General and Executive Director of the United Nations for UN Women. She's also the global head of the UN's He for She movement, and uh, you can follow her on Twitter at E underscore Yama Yaro, but there is an N before that. Um, Elizabeth, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us, what is the He for She movement? It is the Global Solidarity Movement for Gender Equality that was set up three years ago to engage men and boys as part of the solution. So we are working at grassroots level, but also working with global companies, global CEOs, heads of states, academia, to create tangible solutions for gender equality. So how much does war impede these, uh, these issues that you're focusing on? Because if I think about uh, gender equality, I think about equal pay, uh, but then I also think about the reports that we hear out of Syria or other places uh, where there is war and women are getting raped and killed, or India, for example. So uh, talk a little bit about that. This is actually one of the crises of our time, uh, the issue of gender inequality, because when you look at every single level of society, socially, economically, politically, women are not doing well. Uh, there's lack of representation, but there's also abuse. Um, the issue of violence that you mentioned, globally one in three women will be subject to violence in their lifetime. That's one billion women walking around wounded. So the issues of gender equality, really, we're in a crisis moment, and we've got to figure out a way that we can you know, support women and girls and, and really create true equality in these societies. Can you just offer an example of one of the uh, experiences for the he for she movement, something that has actually taken place? The biggest achievement that we've done is to create this initiative called the Impact Initiative, where we engage 10 heads of states, uh, from the Prime, Prime Minister of Japan, uh, Prime Minister of Canada, to uh, Rwanda, Malawi, um, to the Scandinavian countries, uh, and also global CEOs, whether it be the chairman of PwC, who I was just with on a panel today at the Bloomberg Summit, um, to you know, Unilever, etc. But the biggest thing that these champions are doing is they've identified critical policy areas that they are going to literally achieve parity on by 2020. So if you look at PwC, we were here today talking about how the company have been able to move the data point in their global leadership team from 18% in 2015 when they joined the He for She movement to 47% within 15 months. So who's been the least receptive of the world leaders who you've spoken to? We, again, He for She is an, a, a 
open invitation to those that want to be on the right side of history. And so what we've done was to really issue a call to action and we ended up with those leaders that actually want to be part of the change. So who is notably absent? I don't think I can single out anyone. It is a pilot initiative. So we started with 10 uh, countries in terms of uh, um, governments and the 10 companies, the countries that came to us uh, have really defined some concrete change. Malawi is on a, you know, they have now outlawed child marriage as part of the Hifashi commitment. In a space of 12 months, the chiefs, the male chiefs in Malawi worked with the female chiefs and went around and announced more than 3,500 child marriages and these girls are now back in school. So we are seeing that those, those who want to be on the right side of history are doing something very concrete and very inspiring. Can you talk a little bit about your own background and how you came to be part of this UN initiative? I grew up in a tiny village in Zimbabwe, and when I was eight years old, the United Nations came into my village. We were going through one of our worst droughts, and I was starving. I had not eaten for several days, and literally the UN saved my life. Uh, a young woman who happened to be Zimbabwean but worked for uh, UNICEF found me underneath this tree, gave me a bowl of warm porridge, and literally, you know, I survived. And I knew from that early young age that I wanted to work for the UN, and so I pursued that vision, and I've now been with the UN for 15 years. Uh, working for different entities from uh, UNAIDS in Geneva, WHO. I've also worked at the World Bank, and now I'm with UN Women as the senior advisor uh, to the Undersecretary General. So how young were you when you left Zimbabwe? So I left Zimbabwe in my early 20s, uh, moved to the United Nations with 250 pounds to my name, with no friends or family. I had my dream, though, to become this young girl who worked for the United Nations, wore a blue uniform. And uh, I ended up um, you know, studying political science at the London School of Economics, and, um, and here we are. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really uh, fascinating to speak with you, and uh, we wish you the best of luck in the initiative. Uh, Elizabeth Yamiyaro is Senior Advisor to the Undersecretary General and Executive Director of UN Women. She is also the Global Head for UN's He for She Movement. She is joining us here uh, from the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit in our uh, 7:30 Lexington Avenue headquarters here in New York. Uh, really interesting, and uh, it's definitely uh, interesting to hear about all of the different challenges and sort of the uniting thread between them all uh, through different nations and different challenges. There's sort of a disconnect in Silicon Valley where you think of a sort of mm, socially progressive and liberal attitude mm -hmm. uh, while the pay gap between the genders has widened and there's talk of uh, the Brotopia that Emily Chang of Bloomberg Television wrote about. Here to talk about how to make the tech world perhaps a little bit more equal is Anil Dash. He is chief executive of Fog Creek Software in New York. He also was an advisor to the Obama White House's Office of Digital Strategy. Uh, we're so glad that you could join us. Glad Thank you for here. being here. So uh, what is sort of at the root of this uh, inequality that persists between the genders, even in Silicon Valley? You know, there's, there's a lot of good intention, as you said. And then there is the self-reflection and the challenge of changing yourself and saying, what, what am I doing wrong? Is it just thinking the right things enough to get it done? And then there is, the, the, I think, the slightly more legitimate excuses. We're moving at breakneck speed. Everything is changing really rapidly. Uh, I'll get to fixing all this social stuff once everything is settled down. Of course, there is no settling down in tech. And so they, they sort of you know, kick the can down the road a lot. And that's, that's the most charitable interpretation. And then we have people that, that say they care and just don't. 
you know, which is one of those things that, that we have to reckon with as an industry. I think all those things combine together to close off a lot of opportunity, um, you know, for the for the companies that aren't evolving in that way. In our case, we're a small independent company. Um, we, we we build a site called Glitch, which is like a YouTube for coders. So we're competing for talent with Facebook, with Google. Um, by us being able to plant a flag and say we're really going to stand on, you know, meaningful measures that push for uh, equity and push for inclusion, uh, that's been a competitive advantage for us. Even things like simply doing salary transparency, where people know what their salary is going to be when we hire them, that opens the door to us attracting talent that others can't. Anil, could you just describe a little bit of your background on the world of blogging so people sure. understand yeah. how you came to be... I believe one of the few people that could count uh, Prince as well as uh, Bill Gates uh, uh, among uh, their pre at least their previous followers. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very, um, you know, social media used to be a small world, right? So I started blogging 20 years ago and you had to be fairly interested in both technology and media at that point to do both. And so, um, you know, I've been making software, you know, we had the, the, back then it was, you know, Windows 98 or whatever it was, you had this sort of um, conventional software industry, but the idea Six that- Six Apart was, uh, yeah. was you? Yeah, yeah, I was the first employee there and we made tools like Movable Type, which was one of the early blogging tools. And, um, and people took that and used that to make Huffington Post or to make Gawker, or to make all these sort of, you know, really prominent early media sites. And like I said, you were combining technology and media and, uh, you know, at Bloomberg, that might be pretty obvious. At uh, a lot of other places, it wasn't. And, um, and so that was one of those moments where we realized what in retrospect became social media would be the thing that defined technology to people even more than, uh, you know, using a spreadsheet program or something like that. And so out of that, that sort of community of people that were paying attention to that came a lot of the early social networking, social media platforms, as well as a lot of the sort of big innovators and, and inventors that I think have gone on to become household names. Does, uh, does it ever uh, cause you some kind of irony that uh, the social media explosion has come back to create I don't want to say a social media, yeah. but certainly social media where you don't know who's behind the information, you don't know what their agenda is, and there's very little way in which you can track it and hold yeah. people accountable. Yeah, there were you know there were a lot of um, uh, maybe faulty assumptions is one way to put it, or even just sort of short-sighted assumptions about how the systems were designed. You know, the the idea when you're building tools in 2000 or 2005 or in 2006 when Twitter launched that maybe a billion people would show up and use your tool would be absurd. So, so this idea that they were going to design to anticipate that was a little unexpected. I think what came of that was assuming everybody was going to be part of the same communities, part of the same clique, didn't anticipate the values everybody had, didn't anticipate building accountability for everyone. So given that and given where the social media world has come from, do you think that Facebook and uh, its rivals have adequately addressed some of these security concerns as well as some of the uh, social concerns? Uh, no. You know, there's so much more to do. And, and this actually goes to the earlier point about inclusion in the industry. If, if more of the people in power at Facebook and these other companies were the people that get targeted and harassed online or they get marginalized by these technologies, I think you would see very different designs and very different prioritizations of their products. I think they're starting to reckon with it. I mean, there are a ton of good people at these companies and they want to do the right thing but it's a lot easier to prevent than it is to try and cure after the harms have already been caused.
That's what I was going to ask is it's one thing to go and consciously try to be diverse, mm -hmm. but isn't there some kind of business advantage have you found uh, mm -hmm. to hiring people with different points of view? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you end up with them anticipating, uh, you know, flaws or weaknesses. And I, I look at this as sort of, um, you know, in, in, in the conventional tech industry, the things that everybody pays attention to are uh, security, scalability, issues like that. And you always anticipate it. You sort of say, this is the next area where we're going to have to anticipate a, an area of vulnerability. I look at the same thing with culture. Culture debt is just like technical debt. It's something that you, um, one way or another, you're going to pay, right? One way or another, you're going to have to, to um, address these things that you were short-sighted on or that you underinvested in. Why not be preventative? I look at it as, you know, it's the right thing to do morally and ethically. That's where it starts. But it's also a great way to manage risk as a company that's, you know, really operating extremely competitive environment. Uh, let's reduce our risk and increase the odds that we're going to be able to compete against these giant players. I want to thank you very much for joining us. You're going to be blogging about this, right? Absolutely, and tweeting about it too. Well done. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks Neil Bashi is the chief executive of Fog Creek Software, one of the many attendees here at the Business of Equality Summit uh, at our New York City corporate headquarters and uh, brings together a variety of business, academic, and nonprofit leaders to talk about equality and diversity in the workplace. A $62 billion bet on orphan drugs uh, to treat uh, diseases such as Hunter's Syndrome. That's the case of Takeda Pharmaceuticals and its $62 billion deal to acquire Shire. Here to tell us more is Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Neeson. That's N-I-S-E-N. -E Max why is Takeda spending $62 billion on Shire? Well, I, I think they're really desperate for, for some combination of, of geographic and, and drug diversification. Uh, they're pretty heavily dependent on, on some older treatments themselves, uh, nothing much in the pipeline, and also on the Japanese market, which is particularly tough uh, for drug makers, given that they have some pretty aggressive uh, price controls at times. So they were just looking for a way to supplement their pipeline, uh, get into the United States to a greater degree, and also um, get into the rare disease drug market, as you mentioned. So let's talk price. This $62 billion price tag includes a $31 billion bridge loan uh, that makes it the largest such borrowing ever by a Japanese company for an acquisition. What do you think? Do you think that this is fairly valuing Shire? Um, you know, considering that, that it traded close to the levels that it's being bought at uh, last year, it doesn't seem like an enormously expensive deal uh, on that kind of metric. But in terms of the amount of debt that's being raised here, uh, the damage that's being done to, to Kata's balance sheet, uh, then you have a little bit more in the way of questions, just because there, there are some risks here. Uh, Shire is pretty heavily dependent on its hemophilia business, uh, which is facing some competition now and will in the future from potentially curative gene therapies. And also, just um, in terms of integration risk and the level of synergies that Takeda is targeting, uh, both more than the usual. So definitely a lot of risk given the amount of debt that's coming into play here. Because Shia already had uh, in the realm of $18.5 in debt on its books. So this is going to be one of the more leveraged pharmaceutical companies in the world uh, if this deal is completed. Max, just to go to this issue of orphan drugs, rare uh, diseases, the one I was just going to use as an example is elipraze. 
and Elaprase is the drug that Shire has to treat Hunter's syndrome. The cost of the drug for a full regimen of treatment, I believe, is like $365,000, and the sales of Elaprase were more than $350 million a year. That's just for one drug. Is that the kind of number that, and, the, and the situation that drug companies are really looking for? Yeah, so there are a lot of benefits to that sort of, uh, to rare disease drugs of that type. You don't have to spend a lot on marketing. Uh, you do have to go out and find the patients and make sure they're getting on drugs. But, you know, it's enormously profitable uh, in a way that's different from, you know, say a, a really competitive area like diabetes, where you have to fight against a bunch of similar drugs for every single patient, pay huge rebate, uh, rebates to insurers and pharmacy benefit managers. So I, I think that's one of the things that, that makes this attractive as well. What's the risk of failing to integrate the two companies well? I mean, when you're talking about the debt level and leverage, there's a little voice in the back of my head that just keeps saying, Valiant, Valiant, Valiant. I mean, is this going to be uh, the same? Bausch and Lom. Bausch and Lom. <laughs> All right. Thanks, thanks, Pip. No, no, well, they're changing the name. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there you go. That makes it's a lot Bausch of sense. Health, right? Well, of course, yeah, because that, they that, don't that. want the name in the back of the head saying Valiant. But, you know, is there a risk that this could end up being uh, something like that, a highly levered deal that goes bad. I definitely think there is, um, because you know you have this is the biggest ever takeover from from a Japanese country, company of a drug company um, that that offers some some potential integration headaches. And um, as I mentioned, the, those risks to the hemophilia franchise, some other generic competition. If uh, if Shire delivers, especially if its pipeline delivers less than expected or hemophilia competition is greater than expected, you could see uh, a sales slowdown that, that makes that debt load uh, even scarier. Well, while it's probably not going to be anything on the scale of, of Valiant where, you know, the business kind of just collapsed, uh, still still makes their debt pay down targets, which are going to have to be aggressive, uh, look pretty risky. Does it matter at all that this is a Japanese and a British company coming together in an age of trade wars and, and trade concerns? I mean, you know, that that is a potential risk as well, considering things are so volatile. And um, especially in the United States, I think uh, the the Trump administration has been making some noise about uh, other countries paying its paying their fair share for medicines. You know, we subsidize a lot of R&D costs uh, through paying an outsized share of, of you know, paying higher drug prices, paying more for medicines. Um, so if that changes, that, that's another potential risk of, of such a big international uh, transaction. Who might be next? Because uh, AbbVie tried to buy Shire uh, a couple of years ago. Um, also, there was talk that Allergan was interested in Shire at one point. Who's next, do you believe? Um, you know, I, I don't think there's a particularly acute risk of another company uh, jumping in to, to kind of mess up Takeda's offer. Uh, just given the the risk profile and the cost of the deal, you know Pfizer is always mentioned as the most likely to go for a mega deal, but they were pretty explicit uh, that they weren't interested on their most recent earnings call. Um, but I, I think Pfizer is is due for a deal uh, of decent size, even if it's not Shire, um, Merck as well. The question is whether they're going to go for something of of the big consolidating type, or or to try to bolster their pipelines. 
you know, just to put this into perspective, Takeda and Shire together would have uh, more than $31 billion of revenue. Uh, that doesn't put it in the top five in terms of revenue. It's behind Johnson & Johnson, Roche, Pfizer, Novartis, Sanofi, Merck, Bayer, GlaxoKline. Uh, so it definitely an interesting tie-up that pushes it into those top ranks, but they are both of much smaller size than some of they these other companies. They will be on the top five of uh, total debt and leverage ratio, though. Well, they can have that um, that crown and wear it proudly, perhaps, for the, for the time being. Anyway, Max Neeson, thank you so much for being with us. Max Neeson is our biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.